A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, we are taking this week's shortcuts off. Here is a favorite Canada Land episode from last year. You'll notice there are no ads on it. If you like that, you can get that all the time and live it up when you give us five bucks a month by clicking the link in your show notes or going to canadalandshow.com slash join. Back on Monday with a new episode. News came last week that Torstar is shutting down the presses of the Hamilton Spectator. The spec will continue publishing, for now, but the old printing presses in that red brick building that you pass on the highway, all of that's shutting down. 178 people are getting laid off. The building itself will be sold. We're going to tell you a story today about what might have been. The first person I want you to meet is a guy named Wilson. He spoke to our producer, Kasia Mihailovich, just the other week. My name is Wilson Southam, Wilson John Hamilton Southam, and I'm 86 years old and uh, you know, someone with it, but <laughs> a little drifty. Wilson might have a gift for seeing what is coming around the corner. His big success was in dentistry. And then I got involved in a small company that grew 60% a year for 10 years in the dental health field. And I wandered all over North America and Australia that used to bring me over every year to talk, talking about a new way of delivering health care, dentist sitting down and assistant keeping everything in his hands that he needed and so on. That company actually invented the way you now see a dentist in a reclining chair with the dentist sitting down next to you. Before that, you would sit upright in a chair and the dentist would stand. But 
Before all that, before dentistry, Wilson was a reporter. Newspapers, after all, were the family business. Well, I uh, worked for three years as a reporter. I was the first one to put fire police and uh, OPP radios in a, and a telephone in a car and go chase the news. That was with the Hamilton Spectator from 60 to 63. And then I was, I uh, wrote, directed, and produced 65 television programs for uh, the CBC. Wilson Southam is one of those Southams. He is the great-grandson of William Southam, who started the newspaper chain, Southam Inc., in 1904. The Hamilton Spectator was actually the first newspaper Southam owned outright. Southam Inc. would come to own newspapers and radio stations across Canada, including the Calgary Herald, the Ottawa Citizen, and many more. You might imagine Wilson Southam as the inheritor of a media empire, taking over his great-grandfather's chain, doing whatever it is that scions of media dynasties are supposed to do. But that's not what Wilson is about. I spent my life running away from nepotism when they started making noises at the spectator about moving me up the ladder. I, I left, and uh, when the same thing happened at CBC, I left, and when the same thing happened at Ryerson, I left. Wilson was always more interested in innovating than he was with inheriting. And in 1991, he hit on something prescient. It was called InfoLab, a project headed by a reporter named Wayne McPhail. Well, it was started because McPhail was brilliant. And uh, he started it in himself in the basement of The Spectator, and they were a skunk works. And they used the way of working together that was developed at the group at Cox, which was the dental company I mentioned. And uh, they, were, they were brilliant. A non-hierarchical skunk works, which is a term meaning a group freed from the bureaucracy of the larger organization so that it can come up with the next big thing. Or, in the case of InfoLab, the quest was to respond to the next big thing. The internet. Not many people knew it was coming to destroy the newspaper industry, but Wayne McPhail did. Before the web had even been invented... Wayne was dreaming of a world of hypertext and multimedia designed and driven by journalists. And for about five years, InfoLab worked to make that world a reality for newspapers. That's quite something to think about. We're talking about 1991. In the basement of the Hamilton Spectator, they were running a digital news lab under the feet of the Specs newsroom. And then it died. More accurately, it was killed by somebody that you've heard of. From your perspective, what happened to InfoLab? Why didn't it continue and make widespread the innovations in journalism that it had come up with? Well, for power over other people, they moved it to head office. and It was a skunk works working out of an, you know, the old spectator building with nobody running it, and everybody swore they would try, try to make it work, and they did, but they could, yeah, they couldn't take the atmosphere at head office, which was all about pyramids and people dealing in power down and so on. Who made that decision to move InfoLab? That was part of the battles going on at head office between Conrad Black and Bill Ardell, the president, and Sandy Prozis, the head of uh, the communication division. Conrad is an interesting guy. He was really very much about power. In it, minutely, 
always, I don't think he uh, realized what he was doing. I committed my shares in Southam for sale and went to a last meeting and resigned, which uh, annoyed Conrad, who was used to having his own way, Conrad Black. But uh, I was I was gone. Infoli was gone. That was all about power, that stuff. Do you think it's much different today? No, I don't think it's going to change. I think the species is wiping itself out. Well, I think you're probably right on that. And journalism seems to be going faster than other industries. Yeah, it's very sad. Well, it's going because of the things that the InfoLab could have helped it with, but they didn't get a chance. What if we had the answers to the coming news crisis right here in Canada years before anybody else? What might have gone differently if the info from InfoLab had actually been used by Southam, later Post Media, to make the transition from print to digital? Well, journalist Wayne McPhail the former director of InfoLab, which might have been the very first digital news lab in the world, joins me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Joseph Santorelli, David Escobedo, Melissa Knowles, Stacey Gentile, John Rubiner, Mike Remard, Celia Mason, and Blair Hardman. I am a immunology PhD candidate at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, BC, and I support Canada Land for a couple of reasons. The first is that I think it's important to support independent Canadian media, especially when that media seems to have its fingers on the pulse of the nation in the way that Canada Land does. And secondly, because while Jesse Brown kind of looks like he might be a skinhead based off of his Twitter profile picture. He is actually a master at the art of civil, interesting, and engaging conversation with a guest that he also completely disagrees with in every sentence. I guess we should just start at the beginning. Okay. How did this laboratory come to be? Back in, I don't know, the late 80s, um, I got really interested in an idea called hypertext. And it had come from work that pioneers like Vannevar Bush and Ted Nelson had done in terms of sort of this intertwingled documents that you could create. This was before the World Wide Web, but you could link one document to another and you know sort of cross-reference these things. And there was a piece of software called MaxThink that I used to create a uh, interlinked version of a investigative story I had worked on with another reporter on alternative causes for AIDS. And I turned it into like this 36-part hypertextual document with glossaries and timelines and all this stuff. So I, I took the story and I just basically ripped it apart and said, okay, if if I didn't have to fold this in as a paragraph in this story, could I break it out into another paragraph? The advantage of which being that it made the body of the story shorter, but also meant I could use that paragraph or that little snippet of stuff somewhere else if I needed to reference back. Remember Dr. Duesberg? Here's his biography. And you go to his biography. Just to like, we live in a hypertext world, yeah. but, but most people wouldn't be able to tell you what hypertext is. I remember when I first became aware of it as just, you're reading a document, 
I mean, it's links. Yeah. It's links. Yeah, it's just links. Yeah. And and back then, it literally was. It was you put the name of a DOS file into another text file, and then you clicked on it, and you went to that DOS file. And that's yeah. all it was. But it was just this really nice way of saying, hey, if you want to know more about this, go here. If you want to understand this, look at this, right? The combination of news and links, had you seen that before you did it? Not really. I'd read about it, uh, and I'd seen it referenced in other ways, but I hadn't really seen it used this way of linking this stuff. And there hadn't been really, for me anyway, and there might have been if you were nerdier back then, you could have found a way to do it. But this was a very accessible way for me to be able to do it. So I did it, and I put it up on CompuServe and FidoNet, and it ended up bouncing around the world. And I got feedback from, like, Scotland and Australia, and people were saying, what, 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 what? Uh, this is so cool. And we're going to have to tell people what those things are. I, <laughs> so I remember getting CD ROMs sent for free in the mail. Yeah. Before the internet, it was like you, you, you can dial onto a network with your computer at home using your phone line and you'll be part of, there'll be message boards. And there's, it was owned by a company. It wasn't the free open internet. It was, there was, a, there was yep. a, a company pro- linking people together. And do you want to talk sports or do you want to talk this? Yeah, it was so, your grandfather's Facebook. Right, like yeah. it was this this walled garden back then that that was great. I mean, it was fantastic. You could have conversations on all sorts of different topics and post stuff, and people would respond to it. You could upload to CompuServe. You could publish to CompuServe in those days. Yeah, and I, you know, I published uh, you know some essay things I'd written, and then I published this thing, and you know, the response was really really heartening, and it was funny because it was one of those, those sort of conversions on the road to Damascus moments, right? That I remember one day. After getting, I think it was an email from Scotland, um, I was walking up to the newsroom, and you have to go by at the Spectator building. They used to have the presses right in the building, as we'll still do. Um, And I had to go by the presses, and I could look and see the presses running. And I'm thinking, this is crazy. This is like a multi-million dollar Heidelberg press, and it's reaching 160,000 people in Hamilton. And I just published this thing for free in a closet in my living room, and I'm getting emails from Scotland. Like, this is where things are going. Like, this is insane that I can do this. What you just said is extraordinary. What you're telling me is that within the biggest newspaper chain in Canada at the time, Southam, which later became Post Media, there was a journalist who looked at the press and said, this thing is dead. The future of news is digital in the year... This would be 1987, I think. 1987. And you had to break copyright. Well, yeah, you, they, you, didn't, you, they didn't care. Right. I mean, and, and <laughs> God, God loved them that they didn't, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I just... You were pirating... Uh, yeah, yeah, I was pirating my... Oh, I was yeah. my own story, and along with another reporter, so... Fair is fair. But yeah, I mean, I, 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 and I think I probably asked permission and I think I, it was probably like, what the hell? Yeah. yeah. Would they know yeah. what you were talking about? Probably I mean, not. But that, you know, and that was fine. That was who, great. Who was reading it on CompuServe? Is it just like some general, like, was it, was this in a specific area of? You know, I honestly don't remember where I published it. You know, it, it, but it just seemed to catch and it, it caught people's imagination because it was different. Nobody had seen I think people at that time may have seen hypertextual pieces, but not like that, not journalism. And that was the thing that I think triggered people's interest is this is a piece of journalism. Yeah, the combination of those two things. The first time I played with hypertext was like you would do like a little choose your own adventure game with your friends and take a little picture and like this would, you know, like like a text game would be. Yeah, Zork and stuff like that. Yeah, Right. But this was this was. 
I don't know, possibly the first time in the world that somebody put those two things? It's hard to pin down. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's the first time I was aware of it. I'm sure probably somebody listening to this will say, Wayne's an idiot. You know, I did this 10 years earlier, and that's okay, but I wasn't aware of it at the time. You should claim that shit. Until proven otherwise, this was the first time that anybody did this. How did this become your job to do this? did a a couple more of those over the years, uh, just sort of picked away at it. And then one day, um, I got a visit from a really cool guy named Wilson Southam, who is one of the Southams of Southam Inc. And he was this great, super smart guy. And he was on the board of Southam and was working on a thing called the Future Readership Task Force, which was pulling together reporters and editors from across Canada to work on a document that would say, okay, what's next for Southam? Southern was asking those questions in, is this still the late 80s or is this the early was, 90s? This was now 91, late 91. What's the future of newspaper readership in 91? Yeah, yeah. Where, where is it going? What's going to happen? Because um, they were worried as, as well they should be. And, you know, and to be fair, Southam in the past had shown some leadership around this stuff. Like in the 70s and 80s, they they took a really interest, real strong interest in a, a system called Teledon, which was a sort of a video text format. I remember there was actually one in the bus terminal here in Toronto that it showed, you know, it's bright yellows, greens, yellows, uh, it was text. Uh, and it could, it, the thing about it was it could actually draw graphic shapes and stuff. And it was through the phone lines to a television set or a kiosk in the case of the bus terminal. And Southam had invested early Early in that and done actually pretty well in it because it was one of the leaders of video text technology. So there had been interest in the past, but there seemed to now be a sort of a, a renewed interest. There was some sense that the computer stuff might be something here. So they were trying to look ahead and see what, what could be. Right? And what does it mean to get a call from a Southam when you're working for the Southam newspaper chain, the largest newspaper chain in the country? It was it was pretty scary because I was just some I was a nobody right I was just some schmo reporter at the Hamilton Spectator. How old would you be at the time? Uh, I would have been like twenty seven, twenty eight, and so it was pretty scary. And he sat beside me. I had a laptop back then, which was the size of a barn. Uh, I was showing him this stuff, and he just thought this was really cool. And I think he had actually bought one of the first Lisa computers. That was the precursor to the Macintosh yeah. in Canada. And he was quite computer savvy, um, which was great. And he had these really cool, I remember these really cool red glasses, you know, red frame glasses. So I thought he was a pretty cool guy. So I showed him this, and he said, I, this is really interesting. Would you be interested in uh, working on the Readership Task Force with me and producing the task force report in this hypertextual form. And I said, yeah, that would be great. And I was scared shitless, but we did it. A couple of months later, I was in the basement of uh, the Hamilton Spectator starting Southam InfoLab looking at future information products. And right above you was the newsroom. Yeah. You were right beneath their feet. Like what you just said, like that pitch you made was like in 91, you're saying this is where news news is going. Yeah. Yeah. They knew. They had the information, yeah, and they yeah. had the foresight to to empower it and to and to create a unit, yeah, and, absolutely. And, and they yeah. put you underneath their own feet as they were continuing to put out the daily print edition, yeah. So you, so now you've got a team. Uh, at first, no, but then slowly, I added some folks, um, and one of the first things we started looking at was the uh, a device called the Apple Newton, which was one of the early PDAs that that yeah. when Steve Jobs came back into Apple, he canceled it. But it was this handheld device that could do handwriting recognition that it gets you know mocked for. Yeah, uh, the OCR was yeah. kind of famously bad. Yeah. 
I thought this is like it's the width of a column in a newspaper. This could be really cool. Like how this do we – This is the we... iPhone pre- precursor, really. Precursor, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we, we started working on – so we created sort of a stack that mimicked what it would be like to have a news – service on a handheld device. We were playing. Like, the idea of a Skunk Works is, and it's very much like uh, what Xerox Park created when they created the group uh, that developed the, the, the networking, the graphic user interface, the small talk programming language, you know, all the stuff that was a precursor to the Macintosh that a lot of people at Apple borrowed from or stole, depending on your point of view. We were basically playing with the future. We were yeah. embracing it, you know, and we're kissing it full on the lips and saying, we love this stuff. What can we do if everybody had cheap computers, if everybody had color screens, if the cost of bandwidth went to zero, if the cost of storage went to zero, what would the world look like? Now, a skunk works for people who are unfamiliar with the term, I'll see if I get it right, is essentially a big organization or any organization saying, rather than having somebody else come and innovate and make us obsolete, let's create some ragtag in-house group whose job is essentially to destroy the business model. Yeah. Uh, why don't we do it ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and uh, did you call it a skunk works operation yep. at the time? Yeah, that yeah. was understood. Yeah, and and when when we talked to Bill Ardell, who was the CEO back then, you know, we called it a Skunk Works, and 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 we had an intern program so that advertising people and reporters and editors and and uh, cartoonists come into the lab and work for a period of months and do a report about one aspect of the future of newspapers. And so we really tried to populate the organization with advocates for this idea of, of embracing the future rather than being grumpy about it. So was this just a sandbox or were you like making something? So 91, before the web really hit, uh, we produced uh, CDIs, which were a sort of a CD interactive, so a kind of a CD-ROM product with multimedia, but more with photographs and, and text. And we produced... Wait, uh, wait, wait. You were making like... CDs with news on them? Yeah, we did uh, a really, really nice one that uh, a reporter named Sharon Oostuk and a photographer named Kathy Coward, both from The Spectator, seconded from The Spec, did, called Spirits of Davis Inlet. And we sent them up to Davis Inlet for, I don't know, three or four weeks. And we were thinking, what does the photo essay of the future look like? Like, what if you could add narration to beautiful black and white photography and tell a strong narrative story of a community using that technology because we knew that eventually that would move away from a disk and onto online, but we didn't have the bandwidth to be able to do it online. So we, we tried to create the skill sets that would allow that kind of multimedia storytelling. Which is actually like a huge jump backwards in terms of just uh, speed of, of distribution. You know, newspapers, whatever else and inefficiencies they have about them, they can put one out every day. Yeah. I have to imagine that to go get a CD-ROM printed, your lead time is a lot slower. So yeah. you're actually like much less efficient than publishing a newspaper. Absolutely. But that was actually, it was a very popular CD-ROM in the education market. Wait, so this was sold? Like yeah, you- oh yeah, we sold We sold this. We sold, the. I think the most famous one we did was a beautiful CD-ROM that uh, Paul Benedetti spearheaded called Understanding McLuhan. Man is beginning to wear his brain outside his skull and his nerves outside his skin. New technology breeds new man. And it was, I think it's the, the best collection of 
multimedia stuff on Marshall McLuhan that exists today. Like it, I could swear I saw this thing. Yeah, it's beautiful. It, you know, the the cover art won a uh, you know a design competition. Uh, it was on the cover of um, Communication Arts magazine. It was it was just a, a lovely piece of work that. Uh, yeah, I totally saw this. Yeah. I mean, I remember this this time when you would go into the Future Shop and there would be like a wall of CDs, yep. and some of them would be kind of like you know, informational or infotainment. Yeah. Uh, and this was like a format that was being played around with. Yeah, yeah Voyage, we partnered with Voyager to produce, and Voyager produced a lot of really good CD-ROMs out of New York. So yeah, we actually produced stuff for sale because we wanted to, to be responsible fiscally. But we also did it because it was our way of exploring a rich media, multimedia future for journalism. I mean, it's an interesting thing because if you can free yourself from constraints of uh, bandwidth, then you could really flex and you could have video yep. and you could have images. But of course, this is mediated by the limitations of bandwidth, right? And the actual progress of digital news was very much a product of what the network could handle at any given point in time. Yeah, and we we wouldn't allow ourselves to be constrained by that because we knew it was going to change and it did change, right? And did you give any thought to how this would, like, plug into just the daily news cycle? Yeah, we actually worked on a project in, late in the lab's life, so this would have been around 95, called Ego Interactive. And Ego back then was the, the arts and entertainment section of the Hamilton Spectator. And so we worked really, really closely with the reporters and editor, a guy named Wade Hemsworth, uh, at the Spectator back then. And that was about two things. It was about creating uh, what was called a poly-publishing model, trying to solve the problem of, okay, now with the World Wide Web available, you've got to publish to the paper, you've got to publish to the InfoMart database, so just sort of the, the text and the metadata mm -hmm. that's associated with that, and you've got to publish to the World Wide Web. But you've only got a newsroom full of reporters, and you want to have what we called back then the canonical document. Like, what, which one of those is the real story? You want to hit a button, and it goes off to everything. And round trips back, right? So that if you make a change to one, it, right. it goes back to the main one. Otherwise, you're going to have all these fragmented pieces. Here's what was in the InfoLab quarterly report at the time. Ego Interactive is not intended to be simply an electronic dumping of ego content into a website. Rather, it is proposed to be a product that has the ongoing participation of ego journalists who will respond to readers via email, join in forum discussions, and provide readers with sound, pictures, and sometimes video clips to accompany their written stories. That's exactly what happened. But the reality of that is so different than the vision of it. But it's true. I mean, you know, certainly we we talk to our readers. It's it's not integrated into the into the into the article itself necessarily, but there's an ongoing conversation that occurs through social media. You know, this is like an idyllic early early internet vision of how this wonderful collaborative space. Did you anticipate how awful it might be to interact with your readers? No. It was funny because we were involved also in a in a project called CompuSpec, which was an early bulletin board, and I think one of the first bulletin board systems in Canada for newspapers. Uh, and so we saw some of the troll behavior and stuff. But back then, it was, you know, nerds talking to nerds, right? And it wasn't... You, you know the culture. I remember bulletin boards. Yeah, I remember yeah. people were gross. Today's troll culture, you know, I think back on the way people spoke on those early message boards, I, I, I can kind of draw a direct line. 
I think I was more idealistic and maybe uh, maybe naive about it, but I had hopes that it would be democratizing news and a way of having a responsible civic conversation. You know, the first happened. The second, yeah, not, yeah the democracy second, yeah. is very rarely simple. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you know, I mean, if if you had told me what Facebook would become uh, or what Twitter would become, you know, I would have been appalled and embarrassed. Yeah. Right? I was I, I, honestly naive about it, I think, but also just a future fanboy, right? It was an idealistic time. I mean, yeah. When you, yeah, when, yeah, you, yeah. when you started to see what the potential was, it was hard not to feel inspired by it. But let's get move away from this fuzzy emotional stuff because okay. I'm still really, uh, I don't know, just impressed and curious about the fact that you, you had a model for the future of news sitting there in the basement in Hamilton. Was there anyone else in the world who was doing what you were doing at this time? Yeah, there was um, Knight Ritter, which was a, a chain of two dozen newspapers in the, the United States. And they had also experimented with video text back in the day. But there was a guy named Roger Fiddler, who was a really smart guy, smarter guy than me. And he was really interested in tablet computers and the potential for uh, newspapers to be on a tablet that people could carry around and would have hypertextual documents. And he actually made a, a really fascinating video of what a tablet computer would look like. And it looks exactly like an iPad and uh -huh. works like an iPad. Uh -huh. Well, I do believe that for the first time, we're going to begin seeing an alternative to ink on paper. Uh, it may be difficult to conceptualize the idea of digital paper, but in fact, we believe that's what's going to happen. I remember, uh, thanks to Roger, Microsoft loaned me one of their early tablet computers, black and white, you know, LCD thing. Um, and I showed it to uh, publishers uh, at a publisher meeting, and they were just sort of amazed and sort of also so amazed that they they didn't know what to make of it. Um, Did you show it to, like, news bosses in Canada? Yeah, yeah. So they, you know, they, they could... Yeah, 91, 92, we're talking? Uh, this would have been probably, I don't know, 1994 or so. Everything but the business model, it seems, was considered. Well, we we were working with... Uh, there was a restaurant, it still is in Hamilton, a, a restaurant called The Bean Bar. And so we worked with them on what would uh, a multimedia ad look like. So uh -huh. we had an ad that would link to uh, their restaurant menu, the, to a tour, a 3D tour of the you know, restaurant itself. Um, and we, so we were pl really playing with the idea of the future of advertising as well as the future of news. So we were trying to think through that piece because you know, we were very aware of online classifieds as being a serious problem of coming, at, you know, coming to eat the lunch of newspapers. And then later with Amazon, Monster.ca, all that stuff, we, you know, you could see that coming a mile away. Um, there were threats coming from those directions, and we needed to respond to them. Um, and we didn't get a chance to get there because the lab collapsed in the end of 1995-96, but we were trying to work on all of those things. Did you have the opportunity to make your case to newspaper management? What, like all of this experimentation, playfulness, idealism, inspiration, did it amount to, all right, here's the results of this experiment that's happening underneath the newsroom. Here's what we should do. Absolutely. I mean, uh, we did it numerous times. Like I would, I would go across Canada and talk to different newsrooms. You know, there'd be publishers uh, meetings. Uh, we would go to, I remember a group of us went down to Boulder, Colorado and met with Roger Fiddler and the Knight Ritter people about the tablet stuff. And most pronounced was, and I'm trying to remember, I think it was 1995, the AGM for Southam. We 
produced a presentation for Bill Ardell, who was still the CEO then, all about the future of journalism and what InfoLab was doing. And Conrad Black was there because at that time, both Hollinger and PowerCorp, I think, were interested in Southam. After the presentation, I heard him say, you know, this is, you know, no, this is about newspapers. You shouldn't be paying attention to this. This is about newspapers. You heard Conrad Black say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the annual general meeting, you laid it all out. Yeah. The findings of everything you were up to. Yeah. Telling them where this was going. Yeah. Yeah. And and Black reflexively dismissed this. Yeah. And then he bought Southam. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very shortly after that. Yeah. Conrad Black buys Southam. What happens to InfoLab? It was already in trouble before Black came in for the reason that I mentioned, that we believed that journalists should be involved in creating online news. The powers that be, the MBAs that came in, this was concurrent with this whole wave of sort of MBA thinking of, hey, it's a nursing home or we're we're refurbishing heat pumps, it doesn't matter, it's a business, we can run it. That was sort of the MBA attitude that you could parachute in, make changes to any business and run it better, right? And it was really clear that they did not want journalists and more importantly, journalist unions to be part of the future. They would rather have created web shops where non-unionized folks would just take raw copy and couldn't touch it because they weren't in the union and put that online. They saw it as a technical job, not an editorial job. Absolutely. And so you saw this with Southam. They had an operation in Edmonton that did this, that sort of ripped the content out of Quark Express on the back end with a, a variety of software tools. Toronto Star had it, where they had a separate. But why shop. were they doing anything? Like, what was what was digital news to them at the time? What were they trying to create? Shovelware. They were creating websites that were essentially shovelware. So you would have headlines that made no sense in the context of being on the web. I think well, they they knew they had to do something, and this was the cheapest thing they could do. Right. When when did the original sin occur of deciding that we're going to give away our news for free? I think that was early on. And frankly, I don't know that I would have played it any differently because, as I said, I was an idealist and I liked the idea of democratizing news. And I I knew there had to be ways of making money. But I don't know that if someone had said, hey, should we charge for news or not? I would have said, no, absolutely, we should charge subscriptions. And back then it would have seemed stupid because there were so few people online, right? Well, and you're undercutting the inspiration. If the whole point is we can reach the entire world, now let's put up a wall, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So they're just shoveling content onto the web, trying to just turn it into like a reflexive, automated, technical... Web monkey work. Yeah. Yeah. And what are the implications for what you're doing? It became clear that what we were trying to do was doomed, that there was no longer support for it. It was seen as a waste of money. It was seen as wasting future money because you're now going to create union positions that would be higher pay and stuff, right? Uh-huh. So, How much did Conrad Black have to do with that decision? The timing of this, I'm not clear on exactly what came when. I think a lot of this stuff was starting to go down before Black came in. But it, you know, when, when Hollinger came in, it was game over for sure. And before Black came in, I resigned from InfoLab simply because you know, I was so disheartened by what was happening. And I had to report to a guy who had no faith in what I was doing and no belief in what I was doing. And it just became an impossible situation for me. It was a horrible decision to make. But. And you no longer had Wilson Southam as your champion. Wilson was a champion then, but he knew where it was going. He and I used to go 
for van ride, long cigar smoke filled van rides and discuss all sorts of things about life. And, and he was pretty clear with me about what he thought was happening. Did he know that the newspaper business was making a really grave error? Yes. I think it was one of the biggest disappointments of his life that newspapers made that error, that newspapers with his family's name on it made that error. And I think it really hurt him uh, personally that he couldn't stop it, despite his best efforts. What do you think would have been different if they had realized how early they were to this and scaled you up? I mean, that's what you're supposed to do. And this is often why Skunkworks fails. You empower a group of misfits to make you obsolete. You, you remove them from the bureaucracy of the organization and you say, play, come up with something. And then they do. And then they're ignored. And then the whole thing is disassembled. It's funny now because we're all told, ah, journalism's dead. You should go learn to code. You learned to code in, in the 80s as a journalist. If we had in Canada, if we were pioneering and, and Southam, later post-media, took these values of having coders slash journalists, I can see us having been world leaders in terms of the quality of the content that the, the, it, would, it would be better than simply taking the newspaper copy and throwing it on the internet. But that doesn't really speak to the collapse of the news business because of Google and Facebook. That doesn't really speak to the economic threats that have undermined the entire newspaper publishing model. Do you think that you had anything to offer or to save newspapers in the business sense? I'm not an MBA. What we could have offered was an attitudinal shift a cultural shift, an awareness that when something like Monster.ca or Amazon started appearing on the horizon, they should actually be paid attention to and responded to in a meaningful way. You know, online classified by a lot of newspapers was responded to by voice classified, right? Not better classifieds or classifieds built into newspapers. So it was kind of a crazy reaction. We could have prepared the culture for the web and prepared the culture for a rich media future and prepared the culture for a more engaging sense of newspapers being the hub of a virtual community. Uh, and all of that stuff wasn't around then, uh, with the exception of some experiments like CompuSpec and stuff. What happened instead is that newspapers in Canada and North America became grumpy about the web and reactive to the web and tried to ignore it, tried to pretend it would go away, and hoped that the future wouldn't show up until they retired. I saw early on newspaper story after newspaper story that was about the web being this scary, dark place where kids learned how to make bombs or kids traded drugs or the notional guy pretended to be a girl and, and abducted young children online, all this sort of child predator bullshit that was out there back then. Um, moral panic stories. Yeah, moral panic stories. And that was fueled not by data because it's, it was really clear that, you know, when you actually looked at the stats around child abduction and, and abuse, it comes from people that you know and in the real world, not somebody online. It was fueled by this grumpiness, this fear of this other, this, this new thing, this thing that was scary and people didn't understand. And that informed the news and it informed the news business in a way that I think was totally unhealthy and combined with the drive to not have journalists part of the newsroom set newspapers back 
I think, five, ten years from where they should have been. The drive to not have journalists be part of... Part of creating online content. Like, even now, if you're... And I've done some recent freelance stuff for major newspapers in Canada, and there is zero discussion of what the online product's going to look like. Yeah. Right? Zero. Hmm. You know, good editors, great editors, and I love working with them. But a discussion of, geez, you've guys got audio clips, you've got photographs, you've got background documents. Could we somehow put them online and link to them and create some kind of package that people could explore and discover for themselves and increase transparency? Zero discussion about that. And that's too bad. The failure of the Canadian industry to really anticipate these trends or even react in a timely nature to them is pretty atrocious, but it's not it's not alone. It's fascinating that, there, that, that this was being perceived and this was being invested in and that the work that you did was was really prescient. Um, but maybe it was just there was just too much against you. I mean, certainly a newspaper chain like Southam has tons of baggage in terms of the printing press and the trucks and all of that kind of in-ground stuff. I would like to, th- to have thought that despite that, there would have been a way to, to learn to be agile and learn to be nimble and sort of go back to the roots of the organizations. These days, you know, when I look at the organizations that I think have the most potential, it's not the big organizations. And this is, you know, why the, you know, the 500 and whatever or odd million dollars that the government's going to hand out, which will probably go to exactly those big organizations, is I think is, is sadly misplaced because they're not in the best position because of their attitudes, because of their legacy, and because of their plant. Um, they're just not in a place to be responsive. I have to imagine that some of the people who were in the room 30 years ago when you told them what they should be up to and what they should be preparing for are now going to be the, the beneficiaries of that newspaper bailout. Probably. You know, and that's and good for them. I mean, they probably worked hard. Um, you know, and maybe a lot of stuff I told them was, you know, wrong. But it was at least optimistic and at least playful and at least exploratory. And I think that's that's super important because... Now more than ever, I think we need to explore. Okay, that was an episode of Canada Land. If you want to support it and get ad-free versions of it, uh, just click on the link in your show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join and you can have that in moments for five bucks Canadian a month. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. We have an Instagram account. It is Canada Land Show. Go to our website. It's canadalandshow.com. Just go. This episode was produced by Kasia Mihailovic and David Crosby. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.ca.
com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.